Welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. My name is Joseph Cacharo, and today I am not just joined by co-host Joe Olfond. What up, Cash? Who else is joining us today? Joining us today, you may know him as the host of the You Know Ball podcast, one of the funniest NBA follows and 76ers fans on Twitter. Also, obviously, the biggest Doc Rivers fan in the world. That's right. He goes by at Trill Bro Dude. On Twitter, and you only need to know him as Trill. Yeah, Trill, that's right. Friend my, of the show. How's it going, man? It's Thanks actually my me. legal name now. I've been on so many podcasts. They were like, you, it's it's more than an alias at this point. But thank you for having me. I was just on Wolf on before that uh, you guys are, uh, along with the Saturday Slam and Jam, and then, of course, Bill Simmons and Zach Lowe, constantly in the rotation for the national podcast. Excited to be back on and talk about, uh, yeah, my, my boy, Doc Rivers. Yeah, we appreciate you, man. We... Uh, Always consume your content. We're always laughing and sharing your tweets. And uh, we brought you on to talk about your favorite team, the Sixers. Um, you know, I may I may have said the Doc Rivers thing in jest, but I don't jest about the Sixers. Then they are your favorite team. And we're going to spend today talking about, I'd say, your two favorite basketball thing, the Sixers and slop. That's right. Trade-related trade slop. Wolfon's got a... Uh, a trade idea he wants to run by you, although it's kind of cheating because he ran it by you in a Twitter uh, DM. But uh, we'll talk that. We'll talk the Rui Hachimura trade. But uh, before we get to that slop, we have to talk Sixers. That's why we brought you on. So give a little background and then I'll turn it over to you guys for a few minutes. I was going to say since James Harden returned, but it was actually since his second game back from injury. But still, essentially with Harden back in the lineup since starting 12 and 12. The Sixers have gone 18 and 4, so that brings them up to 30 and 16. They're up to second in the East, fourth overall. Probably, you know, Wolfon and I have talked about how there might be 15 different teams represented uh, by the 15 All NBA players, but I'd say the Sixers, to me, are the closest right now to having two All NBAers, Celtics, uh, Lakers, and maybe even Nets fans would disagree with that, but I, I think it's the Sixers. Obviously, you have the star talent. Number seven offense, number four defense. They've got Joel Embiid and James Harden. Trill, is this the year, man? They've they've disappointed you and us in, in their own way um, for years now. Uh, we know the playoff history with James Harden, and a little bit with Joel Embiid too, even though that's kind of gone by the wayside the last couple of years. So yeah, what have you seen from this team that gives you hope? This is the year it's happening, and what have you seen that still gives you some pause? Well, I feel like the last time I came on, we basically had the same conversation. This was after they traded for Harden. They had a little run. They went, I think it, I came on when they had went 5-0 and and Harden looked like he had, re- I believe your quote was that he had found basketball nirvana in Philadelphia. <laughs> yeah. He was relocating off the ball, hustling on defense. And then kind of all of that receded over time. And obviously, you know, the hamstring ended up slowing him down. Uh, Embiid gets hurt in the playoffs and it's never really the same. I do feel a little bit like the Tobias Funke, uh, Lindsay from Arrested Development, and it's like the Doc Rivers, James Harden playoff experience never works, but teams always seem to trick themselves into time and time again doing it. But it might work for us. Like right now, I, I feel about as good about the team as you possibly can in January. Uh, you know, I expected this from the beginning, to be honest. Like I expected this team to come out of the gates firing when we went one and four really the low point of the season was after that Raptors loss when Pascal Siakam looked like Steph Curry and uh the team was just showing no effort Embiid looked terrible 
you know, Harden had regained a step a little bit, which I thought was the most important thing you could take from those games. But it felt like kind of a cluttered, it was just a mess, really. And then since then, like you said, that 12-12 and 12 start, the, the Harden game when he came back from injury was probably the second lowest point of the season for me. They had a horrible game against the Rockets. And then since then, he's looked like a different player. Maxie's come back from injury and really kind of given them a pop off the bench that they needed. Uh, that starting lineup is working well, even though P.J. Tucker is like non-existent on offense somehow. But somehow they have a good net rating with, with Harden and Embiid. The pick and roll has been incredible. I have high hopes. Uh, it's unfortunate because I was talking about this the other day, but it feels like in any other year in the Eastern Conference, I would feel confident about this team getting to the conference finals. Like I was saying, if we had just traded for Harden two years ago when we had originally traded for him, I would feel like this team is conference finals contender, finals contender, whatever. But now you look across the landscape of the East and you go, they have to get through, like, Boston, Brooklyn, Milwaukee, Cleveland. They're probably going to have to play at least two of those teams. And if that is the case, it's just going to be really, really tough to get out of the East. And I've been saying since the preseason that I think that Boston is the favorite and I think that they should win the East. Now, Milwaukee, we haven't really seen all together until last night when they destroyed the Pistons. Maybe they figure some things out. Durant with with uh, the Nets and, and that injury obviously has affected them. But to me, the most important thing is getting the one or the two seed to try to avoid a hard matchup in the first round. Because we saw it, like, we, we talk about this a lot on my podcast and Sam, my co-host, is a Celtics fan. But, like, you... By the time, if you even can get to the finals or the Eastern Conference finals, you want to try to get the easiest possible matchup in that first round because it's going to be a gauntlet after that. Like, the Celtics, by the by the finals last year, were just beaten down. Like, I think that they were the better team than the Warriors. And yes, of course, Steph Curry goes into God mode. What can you do? But I think the fact that they got there, I thought they were the better team. They should have won the finals. And they were just completely beaten down by the Bucks and the Heat and those kind of series. I, I, I'm I'm positive, I'm optimistic it, as about as much as I can be about a team that has had their playoff struggles in the past. And, you know, while Embiid stuff might, some of it might be related to injury, you brought up last time I was on, like, the playoff elimination games are real. Like, I don't think yeah. anyone... And that's, that's what I was going to say with him. I, you know, I, I probably shouldn't have said his playoff numbers because his overall playoff numbers are fantastic. We know that he's largely been outrageous in the playoffs. It's the elimination game numbers, which, yeah, I talked about last year when I had you on, that... You know, for whatever, call it either like just the worst coincidence in the world for Joel Embiid when it comes to elimination games or, I don't know, man, something that <laughs> seems to be a block for him uh, in those games. I mean, it's not like Harden level where, you know, yeah, sure. he, he's going to take six shots after, you know, averaging 20 for the year. But it is something that I thought was pretty concerning going into last season. Um, and yeah, I, I think your point about getting that the one seed or the two seed is is legit it's something Wolfon and I have talked about in the west as well you know with that like jam pack it's like you're the Grizzlies or the Nuggets and you're getting those top seeds but then you end up with a first round matchup against the Warriors or something if you even survive that it's like that could put a dent in your overall run with respect to the Sixers I I agree with you in terms of like the way they're playing looks like they should be a conference finalist but then you look at the top of the east and it's like yeah I think the way I see it is like there's been years past where the Sixers not getting there has been more an indication of them, you know, 
and what they haven't been able to do, whether you want to call it choking or just not getting the job done or whatever. Whereas this year, I think they could play up to their like standards to their peak level and still not make it just because the top of the East is that good. Exactly. We'll find when you've watched the Sixers this year, I know uh, you talked a little on the last episode about even some of the subtle differences you've seen in Harden's game and like maybe the adaptability he's shown for the biggest stretch of the season that we don't really see usually from a Harden year. Even last year, he did it for like two weeks, I'd say, and then kind of reverted to old Harden ways. He's done it longer this year. Other than that, maybe more adaptable version of Harden. Is there anything you've seen like stylistically with the Sixers on either end of the court that makes you think this year is different? Like they, they have found something this year that they didn't in previous years. I mean, maybe a little bit more adaptability on defense. Like that. I feel like they're zoning up more than we've seen them do in the past. And especially with Embiid off the floor, I feel like that's something that they've liked to do. Like, I don't know if, Montrez is going to get serious run in the playoffs but like the way that they have managed to survive defensively with him on the floor is by running that 2-3 zone and that's been relatively effective and I think you know they have guys who operating at the top of that zone can make it super effective like Melton Thibel like those guys even if you have somebody like Harrell kind of manning the back line those guys are so good at the top that a lot of teams just aren't really able to puncture it. And so I think that's been like a pretty effective knuckleball that they've gone to. And they're using Embiid in a lot of different ways as well. Like the base is still the drop, but when they need to, they will bring him up to the level. And, you know, that's interesting with Embiid, right? Because a lot of times when you see teams playing hedge and recover with their center, it's often more about their limitations than it is about their strengths, right? Like with the Nuggets and Jokic, with the Kings and Sabonis, like those teams are are having their centers hedge and recover because they don't want them in a drop because those guys aren't effective in a drop. They're not good rim protectors. They don't really do well backpedaling or defending in space, but they're, they move their feet well enough and they're big and they have good hands and they can be disruptive kind of at the, at the point of the screen. And with Embiid, it's like a little bit different because he is really good in a drop. And it, that makes, you know, the the kind of playing at the level, doing the hedge and recover thing, even switching him out from time to time, more of a wrinkle or like a counter than it is a necessity. And so I like that they can go to that, uh, you know, when they feel like they need to or they want to just throw an opponent out of rhythm a bit. Um, and, I, and I think I, I feel a little bit ambivalent about it because on the one hand, I think they've done pretty well, like defending on the backside. Uh, when they do go to that coverage and they're bringing him out. I don't know that I trust it because they don't have really any secondary rim protection. And, you know, I think they, they've managed to make it work in large part because I think Tobias has been really good defensively. And he's maybe been the key to actually uh, making that particular coverage work because he's done a really good job as the low man kind of doing the tag and recover thing. And even when he's doing that and has to make that next rotation, like if he gets beat on the closeout and somebody else has to step up, like he's been doing a really good job peeling off. And I don't know, they're surviving it, but I don't know if that can be uh, a successful fallback for them. So yeah, I think ultimately um, that that flexibility on defense will serve them well, but I don't know that I believe in, and, and Trill, I'll put this to you. Like, do you, do you trust that fourth rank defense? Is that legit to you? They've definitely gotten by to some extent 
on pretty cold opponent shooting. I think they're yeah. right now have the second lowest opponent three point percentage in the league. Um, how real is that defense to you and how much of a concern is that going to be when the games start to really matter? So I would say, I, I would say it's, it's somewhat fake. Uh, you know, you said they they're second right now for the large majority of the season. They were by far number one teams just could not hit. There were, they, they couldn't even hit corner threes at a certain point in the season. I remember when this, like, I believe the, the, the Kings who were one of, one of the better shooting teams in the NBA this year came into the, uh, came into the Wells Fargo center and went like, four of 28 or something. And like, this was like a pretty regular occurrence. Those are Raptors numbers. Yeah. 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 Some of it was, I think they had easy opponents early on. Some of it was, I think that they teams just had bad shooting luck against them. Now when Embiid is on the court, I think they're always going to have a good defense. That's just kind of how it is. People will point to some of maybe, uh, you know, the issues that he's had playing against teams like the Celtics when they run that drop and they could just walk into mid rangers and stuff. But the defensive rating and the defensive numbers with Joel on the court, even in the playoffs, have always been good to great. Uh, it's the offense that's actually been the problem in the past. Um, and that is something that I'm hoping does translate. The, the, the bottom line is they have much more defensive talent than they had before as well. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, obviously, PJ, you know, PJ has his uh, issues on the offensive end. And I think that over the course of the season, he's gotten better on the defensive end, but there still are some concerning matchups that you have. Like, like guys that in, in the past, you would think that PJ could theoretically stick on like Pascal Siakam, Julius Randall killed him. James Harden did a better job guarding Julius Randall in the uh, Christmas day game than PJ Tucker did. And I worry about that for, like you said, when the games really matter, when you're going up against specifically the Celtics, but also the Cavs, these teams that have perimeter guys that really are going to, you know, attack that Harden and Maxi backcourt when they're playing together. Because just because he's coming off the bench doesn't necessarily mean that he's not getting starters minutes because he still is. And he's going to have to play big minutes with Harden in the playoffs. So I have major concerns about maybe the structure of the defense, but I do think that if you can get away with playing some of the more offensively limited players like PJ, Thibel, and then I actually think Melton's been great on the offensive end. Now he's been shooting really well, and uh, he actually, early in the season, they were using him as a, and I'm hoping that they go back to this at some point, they were using him kind of in that Bruce Brown role where he was able to like play make out of the short role, and it it just gave the, the offense another look when Joel sat. So I'm hoping that the defense is is real and sustainable there are certain matchups i just don't think it will work against but the one thing i will say is i i've i've been talking about it all season is like a team like the bucks is maybe one matchup that like on on paper the bucks are a better team than the sixers they've had a better history uh than the sixers especially in the playoffs they've been to multiple conference finals they won the finals whatever but that kind of matchup is something that i think that that half because their half court offenses just struggles a lot especially in the playoffs i think that that kind of matchup could be something that the sixers could actually at least push to six or seven if not win the series so really the two teams that i'm very scared of in the playoffs when it comes to the defense are the Celtics and the Nets, just two teams that have big wings who can score, who have perimeter operators that are going to give the Sixers a lot of trouble outside. And then all the other teams, I feel like there might be like, like I said, the Cavs might give them some trouble, but like, I feel better about a Cavs and Bucks matchup than I do about a Celtics and Nets matchup. Cause I just don't, I think the Sixers problem is going to continue to be what it's always been, which is that they have too many one way players. And that like, 
PJ and Thibel on the defensive end, and even the you know PJ's regressed a little bit on defense as well. And then Niang on, is, you know, he's been good defensively this year, but I don't trust that lasting into the playoffs. Maxi, he's obviously has his issues. Harden has his issues. So ultimately what I think it comes down to for in those big games is not only, you know, does the defense hold up, like, do are you giving up too much when you put all your defensive guys and it just yeah. slows down your offense so much and it makes that Harden and beat pick and roll not as much of a threat because you don't have the guys that can kind of take advantage of it when they're, you know, overhelping. This is going to dovetail really nicely with my my trade proposal that we, <laughs> yes. we won't get to quite yet. But, well, I do want to talk a little bit more about the offense and the kind of problems that they might run into. Because this jumped out to me in that game against the Clippers, which I thought was actually a really, really good game from the Sixers. Uh, and it, it was more just interesting to me from like the Clippers defensive strategy that didn't ultimately work. But I just thought it was interesting that they tried it, which was that... They came out with Zubac guarding Tucker and Marcus Morris guarding Embiid, which, you know, in theory allowed them to switch the Harden-Embiid pick and roll, but it didn't actually work because Embiid, whether, like, he might have just been, like, going at Morris in the post from the start of the possession, or, you know, he would get that switch and he would have, like, Terrence Mann on him Mm -hmm. or some other smaller defender, and he was destroying those switches on the backside. So, like, I think he wound up with 40-something in that game. Like, he, he made it not tenable. But, you know, if you're talking about the offense-defense trade-off and you need to have Tucker on the floor for defense and you're going up against a team like Milwaukee where, you know, they can still have Brook Lopez guarding Embiid, but then they can have Giannis, quote-unquote, guarding P.J. Tucker, but really just roving, getting in, you know, every gap, uh, you know, and lurking near the rim, that's when it becomes, I think, a real challenge and... Uh, finding workarounds for that is going to be really difficult, especially because, I mean, to me, like the one really viable way to stop the Harden and Bead pick and roll right now is just to have that super aggressive nail help. Or it doesn't even have to be the nail. It could be somebody stepping up from the baseline if like, you know, PJ is standing in the dunker spot um, or pulled over from the corner. But basically engaging a third defender is like the best way to destroy that action. And having PJ on the floor is what makes that viable. So we talked about the defense in terms of offensive concerns. uh, I mean that, and and again, those two sides of the floor are connected as you pointed out. Um, Other offensive concerns that, that you might have. I mean, we Harden, Harden is having this incredible season as a facilitator. This is so funny to me because like (laughs) so many times they ran into the issue in the playoffs, right? Where Embiid had to do everything himself and he no longer has to because he has, somebody who can put him in all the right spots. Exactly. But in terms of having the supplemental scoring, if Embiid is, you know, whether it's the way he's being defended or the fact that he's picked up some injury as he seems to every postseason, and he needs somebody else to step up as a scorer. I mean, they went out and got James freaking Harden. Like, Yo, this probably is one of the 10 best scorers of all time, right? <laughs> this is what and I was going to say. They still ran into the same problem. This is what I was going to say. This team has James Harden. Tyrese Maxey and Tobias Harris. Look, if Tobias Harris is like your fourth best offensive player, that's pretty damn good. Yeah, They got those three guys, and yet I'm still going to go into the playoffs wondering whether they have a championship-level number two scorer. Like, yeah. It's crazy. That's, I think, my other big question is like, okay, so we know that, that Harden is this incredible facilitator. Um, is there a concern for you that, you know, they're going to find themselves in a situation in the playoffs where once again, they need him to be that reliable secondary scorer 
And once again, he can't rise to that challenge. Or I think, you know, with with Maxi and like even Tobias, the way he's playing this season, that there's enough of an offensive infrastructure there where he can just kind of stay comfortably in that facilitator role. That's the hope. I mean, the, the one thing I will say in, in the thing that you brought up about kind of putting Embiid in the right spots has been, it's been incredible to watch. Like, I know that I've said it before, like, but like Harden is still historically underrated as a playmaker and passer. Like the pocket passes that he does to Embiid, I've never seen anyone on the Sixers do anything remotely close to that. Embiid era, pre-Embiid era, in my lifetime. Like, he's making some incredible, incredible passes to put Embiid in the spots. But like you said, when when it comes to the playoffs and teams have time to game plan, I do worry because it's honestly, it's kind of been dating back to his Nets days where he had press conferences where he was saying, I have had a hard time realizing when I should be a playmaker versus a scorer. And that was when he was still like an MVP candidate. So I'm a little bit concerned about that. I'm especially concerned when maybe a team is attacking Maxi and he can't play as many minutes as we want because Maxi has been that release valve, as you guys saw in the Raptors series. When the Raptors overhelped, he was just destroying them, attacking closeouts, getting open threes. And in certain matchups, there are teams that just don't really have the foot. Like, historically speaking, Maxi has fared very well against teams like the Bucks because they just don't really have the guys that have the foot speed. Even with, like, lockdown defenders like Drew Holiday, there's really no one that can keep up with a guy like Maxi, especially when he is that third option effectively working off of the ball. And honestly, when in B- when he's been doing those bench units, they've been getting him involved in a lot of dribble handoff actions. Like And he's been extremely effective in that regard. But when you get to the playoffs, we're talking about, you know, Embiid and, and Harden playing upwards of 40 minutes a game. And I'm really just worried about these late game situations that they've actually performed in really well this year. I trust the Sixers in the first half of most games. Like I'm, I feel pretty confident. It's, it's really when Embiid starts to wear down and Harden at his age with his recent injuries starts to wear down a little bit at the end of these games. And if that step back three isn't falling, then it can become, (laughs) it can become really ugly. And when, and even Embiid late in games can tend to force it a little bit as he has in the playoffs. Now this year, like you said, he's getting into his spots. His efficiency field goal percentage is, is crazy for, like, I believe it's the highest of his career, even better than the last two years when he was an MVP candidate. So that that at least indicates to me that some of it might be sustainable because I think that the fact that he doesn't have to rely on drawing fouls all the time and Harden has obviously gotten less fouls but still gets a decent amount of fouls for someone uh, that is a secondary option on an offense. But, you know, He's adapted a little bit because, you know, he's he's added the floater game back. He goes to that sometimes. He has, like, a step-back mid-range shot now that he can rely on. But, you know, occasionally you're still going to get the 4-for-19 four James Harden games. Like, that's just kind of it, it built into the James Harden experience. So I would say I feel pretty confident in that I think that they have a lot of options to go to in, in the playoffs. Like you said, like occasionally you could just have like a stretch where Tobias is eating on a mismatch in the post. Like that still happens even with the guys that we have to kind of preserve their energy throughout the rest of the game. And then occasionally you're going to get Maxi, uh, you know, cooking for, for a stretch as well. And a team just has no answer for that. So I'm hoping that the offense is sustainable, even with that questionable fifth spot. I'm really hoping that they try the Melton lineups, even though it's undersized, put Melton there instead of Tucker and see if that can be an antidote to whatever, 
offensive issues that you have because then you have another floor spacer, another ball mover, another guy who's going to probably make the right decision and basically can do everything but hit a layup for some reason. He shoots like 45% on layups. I don't understand that at all. But uh, but overall, I feel pretty positive about the offense. It's once again, it, it is about figuring out which lineups work for which matchups for me is the biggest concern because I think that like George Niang can survive in a Buck series, but he probably can't survive in a Celtic series. So I'm really, and like he's, He's been low key having like an insane shooting season, yeah. like incredible shooting season, and has been really important to the Sixers' success in the same way that like Melton has. So, so I'm I'm not like super worried about the offense, but I do think that it can get bogged down and turn into ISO ball when things aren't working, and that's like the number one thing that we need to avoid. Do you think the Sixers can get the most out of Tyrese Maxey while James Harden is here? I I'm I I actually I I think Doc's done a good job this year. Like I I know that he had the slow start and stuff, but and I don't mean to like uh, just destroy Doc every time I come on the podcast because uh, all things considered, like you know he was they were kind of dealt a shitty hand last year with the Embiid injury in the playoffs. And yeah, he should not have been playing DeAndre Jordan, but we also didn't have a ton of options there. So I've been giving him a little bit of the benefit of the doubt. Uh, I would like to see just like a more creative coach that could maybe get things out of Maxi when he doesn't have the on-ball opportunities. Because as we've discussed before, like, you know, I everyone thinks that Maxi is like this six-man, this like... Uh, he's not a young James Harden. He's not Manu Ginobili coming in off the bench. He's not a playmaker. Like at this point in his yeah. career, he's still primarily a scorer and one of the better off-ball scorers in the NBA. Yeah. So there's really no reason for this fit not to work offensively. Like yeah. if anything, I would say it makes it almost unstoppable in certain games like it did in the Raptor series when the threes were falling. Uh, they had, I, I believe, three games where they scored uh, like over 120 or at least two. And... The, and and it, what it, it looks like to me is the fact that, like, w- we don't make it a priority to get Maxi involved and get his touches. And he he defers so much when Embiid and Joe, and uh, and Harden are on the court that I think that it, it might, with time, get better. And I think that as they play more reps together and they make it a focus to get him involved, uh, it will be better. But, like, I don't know. Everyone just, think like, sees scorer and they think – oh, you have to be, like, a ball-dominant guy. Like, Maxi doesn't need to be a ball-dominant guy at all to be effective. And in addition to that, like I said, like, I don't really think he is this guy. Like, even Jordan Poole's a much better passer than Maxi is and, like, can run more offense than Maxi. And that's going to be the next part of his game where I feel like if he makes an advancement in that department, then it's going to make everything better for for everyone. And that's really the one thing that I've been hoping that he he kind of t- takes a leap in uh, over the course of the season and into next year. In theory, when you think about it, you've got this like uh, low post dominant. I know Embiid can do other things, obviously, but you've got this like transcendent uh, behemoth talent in the middle that can dominate in the low post um, and can kind of have the offense like whirring around him right whizzing around him and you've got James Harden who on top of being one of the greatest scorers ever is one of the greatest playmakers the NBA has ever seen and then you've got Tyrese Maxey who is this like just like dizzying ball of speed who is a great scorer great shooter around them in theory like that makes a lot of sense and yeah maybe maybe it is more of like a doc thing and it it, like if, if there was a more creative coach with a more creative offensive playbook like I I wouldn't even be asking the question but 
and even it, it feels weird to ask the question because the Sixers have had such a good season. And like, yeah, we're talking about, like I said, a top seven offense, top four defense. But there are times when I'm watching Maxi when I'm like, man, no, like he he can do more than this. And it, it, like he can do more than this even on a team with Joel Embiid and James Harden. Yeah. I'm not saying you have to be broken up. And then I started thinking about it more too. And we had that, was it last week or a couple weeks ago? Everything's blending together. Within the last couple weeks when there seemed to be some confusion between what Doc Rivers said and what Tyrese Maxey said with his move <laughs> yeah, to the bench. Yeah. And, and that's when I really started thinking about it too, is like, okay, like I don't think like roster construction wise, uh, you know, he can't fit on the team. I, I In fact, I think they can really make it work beautifully offensively. It just seems like, I don't know that for some reason, whether it's the, the offensive playbook, the coaching, the communication, I don't know, but it does seem like there is something still untapped. And I don't mean untapped in like his development, because yeah, he can become a better playmaker and then he'll he'll get better, of course, as the years go on. He's still a young player. I mean untapped even for what he is right now. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I was wondering your thoughts on that and Wolfons too. Well, I would say, I mean, to Trill's point, I think he is like the most important off ball element for the team. Like he it, the the types of defensive schemes that could in theory disrupt the Harden and Embiid pick and roll are schemes that are exploitable specifically by Tyrese Maxey. Like, and we saw that in the Raptors series last year where like they were playing these aggressive gap coverages and like bringing the nail help over. And it was like one pass zoom into that diagonal gap and Maxey's on top of the rim. I think he was like 13 for 13 at the rim through the first four games of that series or something insane like that. Um, and then it's like the fact that he's become such a good shooter with a really quick trigger as well is like teams that play that type of style and trust their ability to recover and get back out. It doesn't work against him because he is so quick off of the catch, but he's also, you know, like whether he's driving it or shooting it, like you don't really have time to recover out to him. And I think they, they need him playing alongside, alongside them in order to deter that type of help I think so I think it's interesting this move to the bench because he has also become a really really good pull-up shooter right like he's had this this step back in his bag now where if he is the guy who's running the show it can still be effective um like in that Clippers game when they were running drop with Moses Brown and it was just pull up three after pull up three well that's the thing and that that is what gets me wondering like if I'm a defense and Tyrese Max is on the floor and and Bede and Harden are not which is a lot of you know, it seems like part of the rationale for Doc is like he wants to keep Embiid and Harden together. And yeah. so he rests them at the same time a lot. And so bringing Maxi off the bench, I guess, allows him to do that and still feel, you know, comfortable that he has, uh, you know, an effective offensive engine out there. But if I'm a defense and that's what I'm looking at, you know, Max is out there, no Harden, no Embiid. I'm just blitzing him and like yeah, turning him into a playmaker. Like I'm not running drop against him. I'm not, I'm not switching against him. Um and I actually think thinking back to that series against the Raptors last year, when it started to turn was when they realized, hey, we've got this backwards. Like we need to we need to play Harden for the pass and play Maxi to like turn Maxi into a playmaker, turn Harden into a scorer. Yep. And suddenly everything looked different. And so when defenses have that time to scout and figure out how they how they want to defend the Sixers, um, and they are trying to make Maxi into more of a playmaker. I just, I don't know that it's nearly as tenable for him to to be playing without either one of those other two guys on the floor. Like I think he needs to be um, in combat. Like that that's that's the best use of him ultimately. Like it's good that they can run him in that hybrid role, 
where he can be on or off the ball. But I still think, um, you know, against high-level playoff defenses, he's much more effective as an off-ball weapon because yep. he's such a good play finisher. Uh, and, you know, that that creation, the passing is, you know, not really a strong point in his game at this point in time. Agreed. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I feel the same exact way. I, I feel as though I, I'm of the mind that you should just always have one of your two best players on the court. The all bench units don't make any sense to me, even if they've yeah. been somewhat effective in the regular season. I think when you get to the playoffs, you're going to realize, oh, you need one of James Harden or Joel Embiid on the court to kind of make these things work. And look, they're going to, it's going to present its own offensive issues when it's just Joel Embiid. And it's going to present just its own defensive issues when it's just James Harden. But those are things that you figure out over the course of the regular season. And I do think that they have the option to do that because it's not like Doc's playing them together all the time like he did with Simmons and Embiid because Simmons really struggled uh, with your traditional backup centers that we had here. And we would get generally get killed uh, during those moments. But I think the fact that Maxi should be should be able to play with both Harden lineups and Embiid lineups could be really beneficial to them in the playoffs when one or the other sits because it just gives you it gives you more juice like it gives you more off ball juice. It, Maxi can run some actions with Embiid, um, and honestly, he, he he had some chemistry last year. We talked about it with like Andre Drummond. Like it's like it's not like he doesn't have the ability to run some offense. You just don't want him being your primary creator. You want him to be a guy who can, you know, run some offense, but is, as you said, most effective off the ball. Yeah. And if, he, if he's just out there with Harden, I mean, they can run some guard-guard screening actions with those yeah. two. Yeah, oh, that would be that, beautiful. You know, because Harden, and I feel like I've noticed it especially this season, like, he will, he will attack a smaller defender. Like, he's almost better at doing that at this point than attacking bigger defenders. Yep. Because he doesn't have that burst, you know, that he used to have, but he can still get into the post and like you said, he's hunting that step back mid-ranger. Like it, I think defenses will be maybe more reluctant to switch that. And in he's which also case, a willing catch and, catch and shoot guy this year, more, yeah, more so than ever been, before. Which has been amazing to see. What yeah. a concept, shooting the ball off the catch when amazing. you're Amazing. Um, <laughs> but like when a defense is, you know, either they're going to give that switch, and I think Harden can attack that in the post, or, or just sort of chiseling his way to those mid-range looks, or they're going to try and do something to stay out of that switch. And that's going to give Maxi the opportunity to fly into space and do what he does best, which is, you know, whether it's shooting on the catch after ghosting one of those screens or just like, you know, attacking in space. I think, uh, yeah, any way you slice it, him playing next to one of those guys uh, is going to be the best usage of him. So I think it's fine. Like in the regular season, you give him those reps, you give him maybe some opportunities to build out that, initiating skill set and get him comfortable doing it. But uh, yeah, I do think come playoffs, they're probably going to have to mothball those all bench looks and make sure that um, one of those guys is Harden and Embiid that is, uh, is on the floor pretty much all times. Yeah. I'm praying. He's not still a sixth man when April rolls around, is he? I don't know. Keep this funky. Cause I look, I get what doc is trying to do, but I'm also a big proponent, especially when the playoffs roll around. Don't get too cute and overthink it. You start your best lineup. You start your best five. You can start your best five and still figure out ways for Tyrese Maxey to run bench units for you. Like, like I, I get a little queasy thinking about them rolling into the playoffs being like, no, this is how we're going to play it. This is what's been working for us. Tyrese Maxey's going to come off the bench. We're not going to start playoff games with our best five players on the court yeah it, it seems ridiculous I once again I think it's going to be matchup dependent like I yeah I think it's going to be are you 
God, all of this just comes back to the thorn in my side that is the Celtics, which is like, like, I know Doc's going to want to put size out there against the Celtics. And like, he's just not going to trust Maxi to start in that kind of series. And he's also not going to trust the three guard lineup because it just lacks the size that can really be disruptive against a team like the Celtics. And he cares so much about that on the defensive end, but I don't know. We'll see. I I'm, I'm not opposed to like having multiple different starting lineups for different matchups when you have a weird team like that is corrupted like the Sixers. Uh, But I just hope that, that the one thing he's proven to not do is adapt is doc. And uh, like, I just hope that if, if things aren't working, that he realizes, Hey, we need to pivot and, and change this pretty quickly into a game as opposed to like, just being like, no, this was the plan from the jump. We're sticking with it. If it's not working, which as we know has been his yeah. history. Well, and I think it's in, like, well, I mean, so he made that announcement about how we're going to have, you know, what do you say? Three different starting, starting lineups. Yeah. But since he said that one, yeah, he's only started the one when they've been healthy, right? There was one game I think right. Harris missed, uh, missed where he started all three guards together. Yeah. Uh, that was the game against Utah, I think. Correct. But apart from that, like when they've been fully healthy, they've just gone with that one starting lineup with Tucker starting and Maxi coming off of the bench. So <laughs> that says a lot of things. We'll, we'll see. <laughs> so, so what do you think is like, what is a matchup to you that where they'd be ideally suited to starting the three guys together, the three guards well, it, together? It is tough because I, I this sounds weird. I mean, we talked about Tobias's defense earlier, and I actually think the fact that Tobias's defense is so like I've watched games where like Tobias is playing good defense on like Darius Garland and Anthony Simons and De'Aaron Fox, and like I'm not I'm not opposed to the idea that he can guard like he's honestly played great defense against Garland. Now, do I think it's sustainable for an entire gamer series? Probably not. I think that, uh, the, that the Cavs would be able to figure that out over the course of a series, but like, I think a matchup like the Cavs, they could probably get away with it. I think it's possible against possibly against a smaller team like, uh, the Nets. I, I honestly think the Celtics are the only team that they can't run the three guard lineup against because they've just had a history of just attacking mismatches with the Sixers and just exploiting them. But that's, how they're constructed like that's what they do like they, they do that to every team like I watched the other night Al Horford posting up Andrew Wiggins and just taking him to school so like you're gonna have that in every single matchup with the Celtics so it's not even necessarily a Sixers issue but I don't really think there are too many teams that are like offensively dynamic with the amount of size that could just play that uh three guard lineup off the court like D'Anthony Melton survived against Paul George in the two matchups like it's not like he was destroying him he was playing well but he wasn't you know he's Paul George he's one of the best players in the world of course he's going to play well so I I don't really think there are a ton of matchups that can play that that lineup off the court defensively but uh and then I think offensively it could just be super super dynamic so I'm hoping we see more of it but uh look I'm gonna I'm gonna trust that uh PJ is uh, preserving himself, even though that sounds like a, a like a disaster idea in my brain, and I've never been like I I was never a huge fan of the signing in the first place. But I will say, in some of the bigger games, the Bucks games, the Clippers games, he's been much more active and much more willing as a shooter and getting involved in the offense. And I'm hoping that's the kind of guy that we see come playoff time, and it resolves a lot of these issues. Yeah, PJ Tucker is a playable like a playoff big game playable four you know offensively challenged four beside Joel Embiid who at least though will take the open corner threes and like look at the rim and like 
that does solve a lot of their issues and they should be fine. It's just, we did the same thing with Thibel last year. The difference is that right? Tucker like it, has played in big games. So yeah, exactly. He's got more experience in seasoning, but in terms of like what they've looked like in season, I, you know, I don't think it's too dissimilar from yep. what we talked about with Maxi last year. Um, but yeah, to your point, and I guess uh, for the sake of Sixers fans, that is what the hope is that he's kind of got like one last run in him and, and you know, the, calendar flips to April and he just summons what he's got left and he is able to go from you know doing it once every 12 days to doing it every other day for two months well I feel like I'm losing my mind a little bit because it's like I watched this guy destroy us on the offensive glass in the playoffs last year and yes we were a terrible rebounding team but then I also saw him like 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 screening and running some actions through there and also stay like in the, I remember the Hawks game, game one, I believe it was, he went like five for five on corner threes in the first half. And I was like, how does this always happen to the Sixers? It's just like guys get there and they're like, you know what? It's I had a good run, but you know, it's it's time to stop caring about offense. <laughs> but okay, so a lot of that does I mean, and I don't know if he could have replicate what he did in Miami last year if he was put in the same role this season. Sure. Like are you saying there's a difference between a Spolstra team and a Doc Rivers team? A tiny bit. Well, I mean, look, the the offensive infrastructure is completely different. Uh, yeah. It's obviously a much more egalitarian offense that Spolstra sure. runs, and that's not necessarily for the better. Like, the Heat haven't had a good offense for the last couple of years, but True. they certainly got the most out of P.J. Tucker offensively because of the way that they used him and made him more of, like, a focal point. They used him in a lot of screening action. They would like run, you know, high post split action off of him with him uh, kind of, you know, operating as as a fulcrum a lot of the time. And he was really good on the short roll and suddenly had this bankable floater that went in like 50% of the time. And the Sixers are then just like parking him in the corner. Like he's, he's yeah. playing the same role that he was playing for those Rockets teams with Harden, but like in a much lower usage because Embiid is also there soaking up a ton of possessions in the middle of the floor. So yeah. I just don't know that there's actually room for him to do anything like what he did with Miami last year. And that doesn't necessarily have to be a bad thing. Like it might not be good for PJ Tucker's individual offensive numbers. It doesn't have to be bad for the Sixers offense as a whole, as long as he is willingly taking those threes when they are available to him and continues to knock down, you know, he's making 40% from the corner still like he always yeah. does. Well, luckily the Sixers have never had a problem with that. When we get to the playoffs where <laughs> guys just forget yeah. how to shoot or don't shoot at all, you know? <laughs> um, well, I think maybe like, like one of the things that has seemingly changed for him is he, he used to like take some threes above the break and be like at least halfway decent on those, which he doesn't, now, when he catches the ball above the break, he's not looking at the rim at all. Like he has, which to be is in the why corner. it drives me insane that we're running screening actions with him at the top of the key, and yeah. it's like he's not a threat to shoot there. And defenses know that. Like it really doesn't create any sort of advantage for the offense, and we still continually run those kind of actions. So those are just like the little things. But then again, the Sixers have like a 120 offensive rating. Like, what can I really complain about? Yeah. <laughs> I will say with Tucker too that obviously he's still an above average defender, and he's still like an all hustle kind of guy. Yeah, yeah you but... need those guys. I also don't think, and look, it's no fault of his own. I mean, a like father time is father time. Yep. I don't think he's quite the defensive terror he once was. And I think that also compounds things. So it's like not only, you know, is he not even being able to give you that kind of bare minimum stuff you used to expect from him offensively, but he's also not bringing the same kind of like defensive impact or overall value to the court. And I get that it's not, it's maybe goes under the radar a little bit when he's got Joel Embiid on his team who can cover a lot of things but that's the biggest issue with Tucker to me where it's like 
he's also not bringing the same defensive impact to mask what was already bare minimum offense that's gotten even worse. Yeah. So last year defensively in Miami was like, I mean, uh, he was really good help defender. N- not that yeah. he's bad at any of these things now. It's just like you said, like father time catches up to you. Like there was games in the Hawk series where late in shot clocks, he could switch out onto Trey Young. I'm like, he would get destroyed if he did that this year. Yeah. So it is a noticeable difference for sure. The Sixers are like, have been for the last few years, a really bad offensive rebounding team, despite yeah. having Joel Embiid. And I do wonder if that's part of where Tucker can maybe shine in the playoffs. Like if you go back to the role that he played for the Bucks in their championship season, he had like an 8% usage rate throughout yeah. that playoff run. Like he was a non-factor in their offense, except for the fact that, and especially in the finals, when the Bucks would park him in the corner and the Suns would completely ignore him. He was taking advantage of that by, you know, skulking toward the rim and snagging a ton of offensive rebounds. Yep. They killed the Suns in terms of the possession battle. And a big part of that was getting on the offensive glass. That's an element maybe that he brings that the Sixers don't really have because it's just that was big, the hope. You know, they've been a really poor offensive rebounding team and maybe he can help. But um I would say to transition us, as I think Cash was maybe gonna do. Trill, what if I told you there was a way to just <laughs> Just forget about all these issues with P.J. Tucker and his offensive usage. Forget about the issues with Tyrese Maxey and whether he can stay on the floor defensively. Take both of those two players and turn them into a guy who can guard the Jason Tatums of the world, maybe even guard the Giannis Antetokounmpo's of the world, and you will have no issue keeping him on the floor because his offense is also totally viable. What if we could turn those oh, two Pascal players... Siakam? <laughs> <laughs> one couple couple rungs lower same team though no uh, honestly might might be just as good of a fit on the sixers to be honest with for what they need i would say yeah um so this was this was the trade that i pitched to you uh in our side chat and you actually talked about it in a subsequent episode of your podcast so i yeah. guess i'll be asking you to repeat a lot of what you said on that episode but sure. i did want to to put it to you on this show because it's something that Cash and I have talked about. And I think we both have come around to feeling like, you know, if the Raptors do really want to meaningfully remake their team, you know, trading Fred Van Vliet or Gary Trent isn't necessarily going to do it because those guys on expiring deals don't necessarily have the kind of value that's going to allow them to, to do anything really seismic. Whereas with OG, I think they could actually potentially do that. And I have long had a love affair with Tyrese Maxey. Uh, I know he is, you know, one of your babies and it would be difficult to part (laughs) with him. But if we're thinking just about the Sixers and their championship prospects for this season, I, I think there is a strong case to be made that turning Maxey and you would need Tucker for salary ballast, which would maybe be a plus because you get off of that contract. Turning sure. that into OG Ananobi would maybe uh, be a big boon for this season. Yeah, so it is tough for me because I actually went on a podcast about a month and a half ago and I said virtually the same exact. Like I said, if your goal is to win a title this year, trading Maxi for a wing in the Mikhail Bridges, OG Ananobi mold is probably the best. To find your basically potentially better version of what Andrew Wiggins was for 
the Warriors last yeah. year would be probably a better move with the Harden and Bead core. Now, emotionally, I'm just never going to be able to do this kind of trade. Like, I have a friend who's a Raptors fan, and she was like, I will never part with OG. That's how I feel about well. Tyrese. Like, like it, it does feel as though, to me, like, you can put all of the logical sense on it, but, like, here's a guy who pre-draft I loved for a team that brought me no players who could dribble or shoot for like a, a decade <laughs> dribble and shoot. I should say we had guys who could shoot. We had guys who could dribble. We didn't have a combination of guys who could do both. And that's a guy I love pre-draft that fell to us at 21. That has become even better than I had anticipated this early in his career. That does have star potential if, you know, used right and developed right. And I believe in him as a worker and just as a person. And I think he will hit the highest possible outcome for himself. It's really tough for me, even though logically I could say the Sixers need a wing who can guard the Giannis's, the Tatum's and be a viable offensive player that actually can, you know, do some things with the ball can hit open threes. I mean, corner, his corner three numbers are are in the same way that Maxi's are, are ridiculous. Uh, Even, with a a down shooting year, he's still uh, you know one of the better corner three shooting wings in the NBA. All of it on paper sounds wonderful to me, and I think that if the Sixers' objective was to win the title this year, they probably would be better off with OG Ananobi as opposed to Tyrese Maxey. I just have too much emotional investment in Maxey at this point to to kind of do that, and maybe it's shooting myself in the foot. Uh, and I actually think Maxi would be a fantastic fit for, you know, what the Raptors have needed and would kind of bring a level of offensive juice that that they haven't had. And and I would love the fit with the Raptors and it would kill me to watch him and Scotty Barnes play together for 10 years or whatever in Toronto. But uh, but overall, uh, I think the trade makes a lot of logical sense. But as early as last offseason, they were basically acting like he was untouchable in trades for when guys like Donovan Mitchell were available. So like, I think that if they were to make a trade and, and by the way, I got a lot of shit from Sixers fans. Cause I said, I love Maxi. He's like a son to me. I would never part with him, <laughs> but, but you have to recognize that Donovan Mitchell is like the best possible outcome for Tyrese Maxi. And he probably won't even get there. Like that's, yeah. that's what, yeah. that's what I was trying to say. Just being logical at the time. And now Mitchell's a you know, borderline MVP candidate, if not an MVP candidate. And uh, people are starting to be like, man, maybe we missed the opportunity here. If that really was a potential trade to be made. Yeah. That's something Sixers fans and Raptors fans can uh, go go arm in arm uh, (laughs) together on. It's rare that Raptors and Sixers fans find common ground these days, these last few years. Exactly. uh, Failing to win the Don, or at least get in the Donovan Mitchell sweepstakes is something that they can definitely share tears and beers over. Well, at least we're not the Knicks, because the Knicks are the ones that are like, we had them. Like, like, what's happening? Even though I actually understand why they didn't do it. But yeah, I mean, look, it it makes a lot of logical sense for both the Sixers and the Raptors for what their needs are, for what they need. But like, once again, I just have a a really hard time. And I did see a report earlier today from, I believe it was Bruce Arthur of the Toronto Star, does he work for? Mm -hmm. He reported that there was a mystery team that offered three first now I don't know what what that package looked like but that to me that's about right for what either Tyrese Maxey or OG Ananobi could get on the open market right now so the Raptors reportedly want you know whether they can get it or not like the DeJounte Murray type of package for I have a OG. question about that because yeah. I at being the trade sicko that I am and knowing all of the details of all these trades 
that is not the DeJounte Murray trade isn't as much of a haul as people think yeah. it is. And I've said this before is like the Hawks gave up two of their own first and then they gave up a fake first because they gave up right. the Hornets top 18 protected first for the next two years. So unless you think the Hornets are going to be a top playoff well, team next year, yeah. that's going to turn into two seconds, which once again, it's the Hornets. It could be good seconds, but like we we've seen as in recent trades, like seconds don't really have a ton of value. So to me, that's like, if you said to me, I can get an OG and an OB if the Sixers had two two firsts and they were willing to part with this year's first, a first maybe three or four years from now, and then a fake first for OG and just salary filler. I would do that in a heartbeat. Like I, I don't even think that haul is that crazy. And also, I, I like think... as the Raptors, I just think because if the plan is to you know keep Siakam move forward with him as the the franchise centerpiece and hope that Barnes can kind of continue to elevate and like that those two players have their primes overlap for some period of time. The the pick package doesn't really move me. Like I would be focusing more on players in the Tyrese Maxi mold, like mold, yep. like a, a young guard who could grow into, you know, ideally a lead guard that could kind of tie the pieces on that team together. Like right now it's just a team full of power forwards, basically <laughs> like where, yeah, where is the lead guard to make it all work? And that, you know, unless you're going to take the pick haul and then turn around and trade that well, pick package. That's that's what I was going to say. I'm Look, I'm with you. Obviously, yeah. If you give me the option between Tyrese Maxey and a couple of unknowns and picks, for sure I'm taking Tyrese Maxey. Yeah. I would do that deal. We talked about this. That To me, that's from the Raptors' perspective, that's a no-brainer. Yeah, it's a little tough to see OG go and all the development. But, like, the reason you develop players – is to either have them contribute to, you know, sustainable winners or so that they can be turned into players who contribute to sustainable winners. So, I mean, it's well, development it, has gone well with OG if you can turn him into Maxi. But I will also say, I do still think that's a little bit of wishful thinking. And from the Raptors' perspective, if you are trying to build, you know, a sustainable potential contender in like the late Siakam prime, early Barnes prime, then getting even if it, like two firsts and two seconds it's like even if it was say something like that like uh um i know it's not going to be a charlotte but i'm just saying when the murray uh example that troll was talking about where it's like you end up with like two probably probably two early second round picks in addition to two firsts with some salary filler for an og given the way the season has gone for the raptors the fact that he's probably a year and a half from getting a max that like he's earned but i'm not sure his overall impact will translate to i think you do that because you can then take what you got from that hall combine it with some of what you already have we've talked about the raptors you know between the young talent they have and having all of their own firsts like you 100 from there can get in the mix to get a legitimate guy to put with Siakam and Barnes. And if you've also traded Trent for something, I know he's expiring, but like there's something there. If you've traded Trent and OG, you could probably afford to keep Fred, still go get another guy. And now you're looking at like Siakam, Van Vliet, Barnes, and another guy. So Trey Young. Uh, yes. Trey Young. Is, you know, I'm but, saying you'd be, uh, you'd be able to throw your hat in the ring at least for a guy right, like but, Trey Young. And, and that's what I'm saying. It's like, yeah, obviously I'll take Maxi over the picks, but beggars can't be choosers. And I know the Raptors wouldn't consider themselves beggars because they like OG. It's not like they're desperate to get off them. Yeah. But I also think they should not thumb their nose at those type of like multi-pick packages, even if it's more just salary filler as opposed to like a potential star. Yeah, I agree. I also have, I have two thoughts here. First off, we don't 
don't have a history of Daryl Morey trading a small guard to the Raptors that later became an all-star and the <laughs> piece of a championship court. So at least there isn't, you know, a precedent for this kind of thing. Um, and uh, and then the second thought I had was, is that I, I've talked about this a lot in my podcast is I never can really get a read on Masai because I think everyone thinks they know Masai, mm. but I feel like he is a bit more of a wild card GM in that, People always act like he's super aggressive, and I'm like, I think he hasn't really made a ton of aggressive moves. Like, he's known for the Kawhi move, which is the ultimate aggressive move. Like, that is, like, the grand slam swing. It worked. He looked like a genius for sure. But most of their moves have been, from since then, have been kind of more conservative, I would say. Yeah. You guys and also the, kind of- the Kawhi trade is not, like, I get that, like, he was dealing a franchise icon and did it in a way that upset said franchise icon and said franchise icon's best friend who was still on the team and sure. like probably upset a bunch of people in the fan base who'd grown attached to you know demar Derozan. but like that's not really an aggressive trade that's a no-brainer that's like yeah Kawhi leonard like it's yeah he was the best player on a well, uh, like one of the five best players in the nba at the time so it it's it's I'm with you in that it was an obvious no-brainer. I mean, I, from the beginning, I was saying, like, Raptors fans, quickly dry your tears about DeMar yeah. and wake the hell up. Yeah, sure. Don't like you, don't shed a tear about this trade. They just became contender, true contenders for the first time in franchise history. But I'll push back a little on the fact that it wasn't aggressive because you did still, as much as, like, everyone knew that team, like, that Raptors team had run its course and you probably had to break up DeMar and Kyle and, like, you know, Casey got fired, I'll still... Like you still have to give Masai credit for some sort of aggressiveness there when it came to trading, not just like a franchise icon, but a franchise icon, a guy who had elevated himself to like all NBA level status while being one of the first, if not the first from that caliber of player who wanted to be in Toronto and nowhere else Mm -hmm. and trading that and like the continuity and the, you know, the floor that that brought the franchise. And risking all of that for one year of a malcontent who you weren't even sure could play, would play, whatever. Yeah. So, yeah, in a vacuum for sure. No brainer. DeMar to Kawhi. DeMar and Pirtle to Kawhi. You do. And Danny Green, too. That The, the forgotten that. part of the trade of really good fifth <laughs> starter. Yeah. Like, yeah. But in but in like in totality, I do think that that was quite an aggressive and, you know, it was way more of a risk and a gamble than it seems when you're just talking about like DeMar and Pirtle for Kawhi and Danny Green, right? Because of everything that went into it. Yeah, for sure. And and like, that's why I can't really get a read on him because like, he seems as much as, you know, I think that he's a very smart GM and he makes a, a ton of good moves. He seems like he hasn't, re- he's been a little bit reluctant to kind of pull the trigger on these bigger moves recently. And uh, he's waiting for his moment. Now, is his moment now when he realizes, hey, the trade market is terrible for a lot of teams right now. Like, they're just like the reason why everyone's begging the Raptors and Bulls to sell is because there's no one that really matters on the trade market right now. And that's the mat, the the major thing, especially with the Miles Turner extension talks going on. If they come to some sort of agreement, then you're like maybe Bojan Bogdanovic. Like, there's just not a lot of guys. So, like, if anything, I think it would be a smart move for him, like you guys said, to try to make that aggressive sell-high move on guys like OG or whoever and get back a haul. But also, he loves his guys. He developed these guys. Like, maybe he's just like, I want to try to, you know, have them be a part of whatever the next great Raptors team is, and I believe in our development and our drafting enough to just, you know, keep keep our guys. And what I think is a... clearly a seller's market because of how many teams 
are buyers and think they should be buyers. If the Raptors want to be, they and I guess really only Utah to me are the two teams that most can benefit from this being a seller's market. Like no teams are better equipped to take advantage of a very obvious seller's market than Toronto and Utah. Indiana, like kind of, but again, I think as I've said a thousand times already this season and on this podcast, I think they should be trying to retain Miles Turner, not get rid of him. So the Raptors should be in that mix and with Utah should be able to somewhat dominate this seller's market. But the the last point I'm aside before I turn it back to Wolfon, and it's something Wolfon and I have talked about I think on this show, uh, we've talked about it on friend of the the show, Will Lou's show, the Raptors show, is that the one thing with Masai, you can go back to this Denver years, he's known for like, even if you look at like a Gary, for example, this year, and everyone assumes, okay, well, like him and Fred can both be free agents. They're going to have to trade at least one of them, and it's going to be Gary, and you can't let it go to free agency. But like historically, Masai's kind of looked at it as like, he doesn't have to trade these guys. You can retain, resign and retain the asset, and then move them later as long as it's not like an egregious deal now i'm not saying that's what's going to happen i would still wager on gary trent being traded but that's the other part of it that a lot of people are kind of forgetting too where if you look at his track record messiah i'm talking about it's not a guarantee a guy like gary's getting traded it's very possible he looks at it as like now nah, like we still like him he's still a good young player we'll just resign him and then move him when we need to later yeah yeah i guess for me i've just come to see this and I adore OG and I adore Fred Van Vliet, but for all the reasons that you mentioned, Trill, about like there's nobody out there who's really selling right now. I'm not even convinced that the Bulls are going to. They've started playing better lately, and I think considering how, like they're kind of pot stuck with this team that they put together, and they and they put it together not that long ago. So I don't know that they're going to be like ready to punt on you know this competitive window to the extent that it actually is one for that reason i think that i would see this as a colossal missed opportunity for the raptors if they decided to let it pass them by like i don't know that they're gonna get another opportunity quite like this to really hit you know it's not even really the reset button but just a a, a, like a pretty dramatic retooling because you know, you get to this offseason and suddenly OG's got one year left on his deal and that next contract is looming. Like I've said this before, I don't think he'll ever have as much trade value as he does right yep. now Agreed. on yeah. this very team friendly deal that's going to be easy to trade for because matching salaries won't be a big issue. Right. And there um, are certain teams that should make that trade. Like the Grizzlies and the Pelicans yeah. really have no excuse in my brain not to make that kind yeah. of trade. Without a doubt. So, yeah, I think that's I, I really do think the time is now for them you know, if they are going to make a dramatic move, it, it kind of does need to happen uh, before this deadline. And, you know, on, on top of what I said before about how, like, with the timeline, I'm not sure if, like, the pick package is what I would be prioritizing if I were them. Like, it's not even just about what's best for them, but, like, look around the league and so many of the teams that are trying to compete now. I mean, I guess there are, there are exceptions like the Grizzlies and the Pelicans and teams like that, but, like, a lot of the other teams have already traded a bunch of their first rounders yeah. already, you know? So yeah, there's that, there's not a lot of uh, of options when it comes to teams that could put you know like multiple quality first rounders on the table. That's also part of so the, the video I've got going up this week for the unfiltered series on the Scores YouTube page. Uh, please subscribe. Is all about the Raptors being the obvious kind of like um, deadline defining team for a lot of the reasons we've talked about in these last ten minutes uh, at the end of what was supposed to be a mostly Sixers pod. But um, that that's a big part of it to me too. Is like. There are other teams who you can say like should be sellers, like the Bulls, top of that list, but probably won't for various reasons. There are teams who have been disappointing, just like the Raptors, 
like Atlanta and Minnesota, but they're so all in on winning now and have already mortgaged so much of the future. Like if they make a move, if anything, they're just going to dig deeper into that. They're not going to abandon ship halfway into the first seat. Like the Raptors out of these disappointing teams and the teams that you look at as like should be sellers other than Utah because they're kind of playing with house money. The Raptors are the ones that have the most options, like that should be taking advantage of this because they're not backs against the wall too far in, all in already. Like the way I kind of phrase it in the video is that like they have the chance in these next two weeks to reshape their own future, kind of lay the groundwork for the next great Raptors team while also making or breaking the fortunes of other contenders around the league. And they have the ability to do all that in these next two weeks. And I'm with you, Wolf, on that. I think it would be a mistake if they don't take advantage of it as sellers. Because I think if they don't, a year from now, we're probably talking about them in the exact same situation of being like, probably still not bad enough to tank, but like a year into this now of being this kind of middling team, but with different bigger contracts that are less easy to move and OG with less value. So the time is now for them to be sellers. Yeah. Um, Apologies, Trill, that you came on to what became a uh, no. You're no. You guys are kind of. We've been talking about the Raptors a ton because they've been they've been the only interesting team in the trade market to me this year. Because I look at most teams and like I just know the Wizards are never like I know they traded Rui, but like they're never going to do a full blown rebuild. They just it's not in their blood. They just won't. They can't even if they want to. Man, it's the balls in Bradley Beal's court now. They 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 owe Bradley Beal a quarter billion dollars. (laughs) They are going to hang a banner in Washington. One day that says most expensive eleventh place team of all time. <laughs> I was saying they're gonna be they're gonna be happy about it. They're gonna bring Ernie Grunfeld back just for that ceremony when they raise that rafter the, that banner to the rafters. Yeah, no, I I, I have to say that uh, it, it is amazing to me that they are currently in twelfth place in the East and they are going to and Rich Paul is going to be able to just get whatever he wants for Kyle Kuzma this summer because they just traded away Rui gave up all of their leverage in in any sort of whatever negotiations that they have making it clear that they will bring him back by any cost and then they're going to have three sub all-stars on a max contract yeah like they're gonna they're gonna resign Porzingis too I bet you 100 percent they're gonna re- they're, they're gonna have Beal, Porzingis, and Kuzma, and I like them. They're good players, but yes, like I do too. But also, you've seen the proof of concept is that like they're at best a play-in team, and you're dedicating your entire salary cap to those three players. Yeah. Like, not an exaggeration. It would be almost their entire salary cap. Yeah. Okay. So to pivot back to the Sixers quickly, but to <laughs> but to stay on the subject of slop, let's say you know Daryl Morey feels the same way that you do about Tyrese Maxey. He just can't bring himself to let him go. What what's another move or another type of player that you would target? You know, a realistic target for the Sixers that you think could kind of put some of these questions that we have about them to rest. The dream guy for me that might be a little bit out of reach this deadline because I just don't think the Sixers have enough to really appease the Trailblazers. But Josh Hart would be mm. really fantastic for what ails the Sixers right now. You know, he's not a great shooter, but he's we need athletic wings who can rebound and just kind of you know he's he's a capable enough shooter, capable enough off ball player. He you know you could stick him on some opposing wings. I would love to have Josh Hart. Also, he's a Villanova guy. So of course, everyone in Philly is going to love him uh, because they remember him from Villanova. So that's, that's like probably my just out of reach guy, but the more realistic targets are like your guys that might be viewed as like lower trade value than they had before, which is like 
Reggie Bullock, who's having a down shooting season and he's really struggled this year. So that might be, I guess, somewhat of a buy low opportunity. Jay Crowder, obviously, with what's going on with him. Basically, like, I, and if you want to go with like some younger guys that have like PJ Washington is someone that I've really liked, although he doesn't really solve a lot of the Sixers issues because he's more of a four and they have so many fours and yeah. probably not going to make uh, a trade where they're moving on from Tobias and Tucker. So, I do. I, I look at this market and I say it's kind of bad for the Sixers in that there really aren't enough guys out there that uh, could really move the needle in any capacity uh, that are available. And also, they just have so few things to trade. Like their three best th- pieces to trade are the second round pick that they have from the Hornets, which no one really talks about outside of Sixers fans because who knows? Oh, the Sixers have like the 33rd pick in the draft or whatever because they have the Hornets' second round pick. Okay, that might have some value as we saw in the, the Rui deal yesterday. The Chicago pick at least had some value in, in that kind of move. Uh, and then the and then it's like an expiring Seibel and an expiring Paul Reed, but you get the restricted rights on both of those players if you want to acquire them and then match them in any sort of trade. And then basically everything else would be salary filler, Furkan Korkmaz, whatever, uh, Jane Springer, uh, who, you know, it, it actually in theory could be a nice player, but the Sixers can't develop anyone who can't shoot. So best of luck with that. Um, so, so long story short, uh, I don't really see any huge moves for the Sixers out there, but I think that there could be some more minor moves that they could make maybe to shore up the back end of the rotation uh, and possibly find a fifth starter if, if the P.J. Tucker experience doesn't work in the playoffs. The thing I wonder with Crowder is the deadline will mark approximately like, what, 10, 9, 9 to 10 months since his last game. And I'm not saying he's going to like have turned into a pumpkin since then. I mean, this guy's a professional athlete. I'm sure he's staying in shape. But you, whether it's coaches, players at any level, like t- superstars to the 15th man on a roster, they will all tell you the same thing. You cannot practice like NBA game speed. I don't. You can't even do that in NBA practices playing five on five against other NBA players in practice, let alone being off for 10 months doing whatever, like training on your own with trainers. So I don't know, man, like... I get why teams want Crowder. Don't get me wrong. Like I, I, you know, I guess he'll have two months to ramp up between the deadline and the playoffs. But I, like, I'm trying to think of like a precedent for this. Like, we're not talking about a guy who's like cooked at the very end of his career and maybe took the first half of the year off while he was like a free agent and contemplated retirement and then came back late. Like we've seen that and in the buyout market. I'm trying to think of a precedent of a guy who's okay. He's a veteran. He's in his early 30s, but still has like a lot to give as like a three and D guy who just has not played for like 10 months because he's working out a trade with his team. I, like, I don't know what's that going to look like. Is he going to be able to come in and within two months be the Jay Crowder that teams are trading for? And he wants to start. Can he play starters minutes? Like, I, like that's, that's the, and like, we honestly, like in the playoffs, he started to show some signs of aging and regression. Yeah. Like, and I do think that he, I mean, I think Phoenix is missing him to be honest. And obviously yeah. like losing yeah. Devin Booker <laughs> is a bigger issue. And like, Chris Paul not being the same is a bigger issue, but it would certainly help to have a guy like Crowder out there. I, I, I the yeah. whole situation. He'd, he'd be a great to... deadline acquisition for the Phoenix Suns. <laughs> Just bring him in. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. It is. Yeah. It's a very strange situation, but I, I still think that like I don't think they're even going to get a first round pick for him. Like I don't think that's like a reality we're living in anymore. Which wow. is which is crazy because like a year ago I would have easily given up a first round pick to have Jay Crowder on the Sixers, yeah. but like now I'm like, well, we don't have one, but also like. I just don't think the teams are going to be lining up to trade for Jay Crowder when he hasn't played in so long. I noticed also that, so a lot of the targets you mentioned are wings, but you didn't really mention any big men. So does that mean that you are comfortable 
with the the backup center situation basically being you know Harrell or like a small ball option I guess with Tucker Niang maybe Paul Reed. You want Chris Boucher or something? Throw throw <laughs> well, throw a second rounder. If he shoots the way that he does against the Sixers for the Sixers, yeah, we are winning the finals. So we'll that crash the offensive glass. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah, there we go. Well, I've actually been been saying for a while that it's like Dirk Nowitzki reincarnated when he plays against the Sixers. Like I, I swear to God, I, I remember looking it up at one point. He shoots like fifty two percent in his career against the Sixers from three. So uh, if he can, it was like, like a perfect Rock Ferguson. Divers acquisition. <laughs> there we go. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. The former, the former guy who killed him. Yeah, the 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 wings are the most important thing to me because I just don't really trust. Like I said, certain matchups I don't trust. Thibel, certain matchups I'm not going to really have a ton of faith in Tucker playing big minutes at least. And then you know you can't really roll into your uh, playoffs and and hope that just having one wing and Tobias Harris that's a capable two way player is is really the best uh, choice for you. Uh, the backup center thing's always going to be an issue. It's just always going to be an issue with the Sixers. Like they play dramatically different when Joel's off the court. They're never, it's just like any team when they're superstars off the court, you have to change the geometry of everything. So I yeah. kind of stopped worrying about the, the backup center issue. And I'm just kind of hoping that like, we've talked about it recently. And like, how many backup centers do you really trust in the playoffs? Like not guys who are like, like people will say like, Oh, Jakob Pertl, whatever. I'm like, Jakob Pertl's a starter. Like, like that, like a real true backup center level guy. That is a true traditional backup that you can trust in the playoffs. Cause to me, it's like Larry Nance. Like yeah. there's not a ton of guys. Like most teams are at the most effective when they can move their four to the five and obviously teams in the East have much better options than the Sixers do. <laughs> you have Giannis, you have uh, Al Horford, you have, oh, that would be amazing for the Sixers, right? Um, <laughs> you have Evan Mobley, you have guys that like they can shift down or shift up and play. The Sixers don't really have that option with this version of P.J. Tucker. So it's going to be a little bit harder to figure out, but I've just kind of stopped worrying about the backup center thing because like the Sixers are only making the finals and winning the finals if Joel Embiid is the best player in the world and he can play 40 minutes a game. So yeah. like if they can't figure out how to survive the other eight minutes then maybe that's just the downfall of the team honestly if they could find a way to get drummond back from the bulls I would love that yes yeah. that's the one guy that like he only makes like three million like you basically can do like a whoever for drummond in terms of like salary matching and maybe give up a second round pick or something I, he's been uh, you know, obviously outside of al horford who actually you know you got a lot of shit here but like he was pretty decent when he was healthy for the sixers and it was just a weird fit and a weird season for them but Outside of the Horford years, like Drummond's been by far the best backup. And I I would trust him to to just kind of, you know, get a lot of offensive rebounds, protect the rim. You know, he can play multiple coverages, which I don't think a lot of people like talk about. Like he's still pretty athletic. I know he's had a down year for the Bulls, but I, I do believe that Drummond can survive eight to ten minutes in a playoff game. All right. I think we might be all slopped out here. A little slopped um, out. Do can we talk about the Rui trade real quick? Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm interested to hear your guys' thoughts on it because I'm kind of split on it in that I think that uh, I, I mean, I just don't Washington, whatever, like they're that I, I think about three second round picks of one decent one from the Bulls is about right for what a guy like Rui could get on the trade market, especially as a, an expiring. It's a fine flyer from the Lakers, but I, I talked about it last night on my podcast and I was like, I just feel like the two things that I look at when I watch the Lakers that I think they struggle the most with are shooting and defense when AD's not playing uh, and that he doesn't really resolve any of that for them. But he is still young and like 
He's going to get a ton more open looks playing with Anthony Davis and LeBron. James. He's a good catch and shoot guy, or at least like he's solid enough. Like catch average, and shoot. Yeah, yeah, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and I, I, I don't know. I've, I've always, <laughs> once again, another thing. Sixers fans think that Rui Hashimura is basically Kawhi Leonard 2.0 <laughs> because he shot nine for fifteen uh, against the Sixers in the Wizards series a few years ago. So I was like, there are thousands of Sixers fans that are so confused right now. If the Sixers can never get Rui and Boucher in one fell, <laughs> just one, they, they will be unstoppable. It's offseason. That's good. Uh, from the Lakers' perspective, I do get it. Like, if they're high enough on him where they're, like, automatically think they're going to resign him and stuff, then I wouldn't get it. But I think for, like, taking a flyer on him as a guy who's, like, got some shooting potential, definitely has upside, still young. I do think from that perspective, it makes sense for the Lakers. And I think it goes back even to the summer. Like, one of the very, very, very few things I've given Rob Plink credit for is I thought this past offseason – they did make some nice like buy low, low risk, high upside. Even if it was like getting like a Juan Toscano Anderson. Or, like, Thomas Bryant. Guys like that, right? The guys like that are the ones that they should have been taking flyers on because of, you know, how limited their options were. So I'm fine with them getting Rui, you know, the three second round picks, whatever. From Washington's perspective, I'm also with you in that like in terms of what his value is right now, this is probably the best-ish they could do. But I also think it speaks, like, to a larger point, it speaks to just how poor their drafting, development, and asset management are. Like, yes, this is what Rui Hachimura is probably worth right now. But the fact that, like, so quickly a guy that you drafted pretty high, like, didn't seem to develop that well, and now within a couple years is only able to go for this kind of return, just reeks of everything that Wizards franchise is. So I don't think it's that they, like, the deal was, like, unfair from their respect or anything like that, but... They seem to continually like often draft the wrong guys or often do a poor job developing them and then have to sell low on them. 100%. And I, I actually talked about it. We went through their set because they got the 39th pick in the draft, which is where the Bulls would be picking right now uh, in the next draft. And I was like, if a good draft, if the Raptors got this or even the Lakers got this, I would be like, hey, they could find some talent in the second round and, and really, you know, get some value out of this. We went through the Wizards last 20 years of second round picks and we found really two guys that they drafted and kept from the second round. And it was Tomas Sadoransky, who was the first pick in the second round, and uh, Andre Blatch were the two guys that we were like, oh, those are names we recognize and rotation players at a certain point. So, like, that's the kind of thing you're dealing with and speaks to the larger issue that you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah, so, like, I think it's obviously kind of a bad look that the guy they drafted ninth overall three years ago is now going for, you know, a bundle of seconds and a useless rotation piece. But I do think... You know, in a vacuum, it's not a bad trade for them. And we can't, on the one hand, say, like, give them shit, basically, for presumably locking into a a Beal, Kuzma, Porzingis core and just paying those guys because they don't know what else to do. And then also drag them for, you know, trading a guy rather than signing his next contract when, you know, they had a chance to get something back for him. So, again, in a vacuum, I don't think it's a bad piece of business for them. I just think it looks worse in light of the fact that, you know, he, he was there their lottery pick not that long ago. And, you know, for the Lakers side of things, it's kind of like they didn't have a ton of options available to them and they went and got a pretty quality rotation player for not a first round pick. So I think that counts as a win. I am curious to see what his role is there just because in terms of the scoring that he does, like the ways that he's effective are, he's a pretty good post scorer and, you know, like a decent mid-range shooter. Like he does, he's a physical player. He does a lot of his work inside the arc. And I don't, know if that works, you know, with, with LeBron and AD also occupying a lot of that space. 
So I wonder if they make more of an attempt to kind of space him out and get him shooting more of those jumpers off the catch because he's been a very low-volume three-point shooter throughout his career. But I actually think he is a pretty good defender. Like, I don't... The defense isn't the issue for him. And I think what's important for the Lakers is, like, I do think they needed more guard depth than they did front court depth. But, you know, like Cash said before, beggars can't be choosers. And the Lakers definitely are beggars. So, uh just getting another guy who can essentially help fill out the AD at center lineups is going to be pretty beneficial for them. I think like that's been an issue for them the last couple of years where yeah, AD's best role at this point is probably at the five, but they just haven't had the wing depth or just like the lineup depth period to make those lineups actually really effective. And now it's like, you know, you look at the, the kind of guys that they can slot in there and it's like between LeBron Rui, Austin Reeves. Austin uh, Reeves well, is good. Yeah, Austin Reeves I, I, I've, good. Been sh- I've been shocked yeah, how good he... I knew the Sixers brought him in before the draft that I didn't really know much about him, but he's been awesome this year. Yeah, Lonnie Walker, like they, they have yeah. guys, they have options and ways that they can fill out those lineups to make them better, have better two-way balance. And I think um, Rui will actually help them in that regard. Like it's not a huge needle moving type of trade, but given what their options were or still are like i think it will help i don't know how much but that's what i was saying like everyone's like it doesn't move the needle and i'm like no trade where you give up three second round picks is gonna move the needle like it's just like unless you're in a maybe a crowder situation like a super unique position but like even then like i I don't think it's really that and and the one thing like cash said i will give the lakers credit for one thing they scout young players really well they've gotten a lot of like over the last 10 years, like they've gotten Clarkson in the second round, Nance, uh, Reeves as an undrafted guy. And then Caruso. the best thing, Caruso, the biggest thing that they've done uh, in terms of scouting young players, getting them in there and then finding a role for them. And as like LeBron makes everyone's life easier. And on top of all of this is the last few off seasons, they've kind of done these reclamation projects with guys. You got Monk. You got uh, Lonnie Walker. You yeah. got guys like Troy Brown and, and and Thomas Bryan who have contributed to the team this year that were seen kind of as like, you know, I, I don't want to say disappointments, but just like for different reasons weren't as successful as they could possibly be. And I, I think that, that for that reason, I do like it for the Lakers a little bit, even if it's just like a whatever kind of trade. Yeah. And I'll just say like Crowder's obviously the higher profile name, but I would prefer getting Hachimura for the same package that they like if they'd given up the same thing to get Crowder I would have been less enthused um, yeah just because they offered that trade straight up apparently and they almost did it really Wizards almost did it was almost Rui for Jay Crowder it was Jake Fisher reported it and someone else confirmed it I think Woj confirmed it so yeah why would the Wizards do that I don't know what do the why do the Wizards <laughs> do anything come, ever come on like, that's <laughs> well fine do you not see how close the Wizards are to 11th place <laughs> Come on, they're trying to raise that banner for Christ's sake. I think on that note, we can uh, get the hell oh, out of yeah. here. Be like the Wizards in the play-in race and get the hell out of here. <laughs> oh, thank you guys for having me. Had a blast. Oh, thank you for coming on, man. We took uh, almost an hour and a half of your time. Just in true Pound the Rock fashion, we started a little later than we said we would, and we kept you for Let's 90 go. minutes. So. You can't get more pound the rock than that. But Trill, for real, uh, we appreciate you, man. Keep doing your thing. Uh, for any listeners of ours that didn't already know or didn't pay attention off the top, you can listen to all of this entertaining Trill banter and analysis at the You Know Ball podcast. 
Got anything else to plug or anything? No, trail? I mean, if you guys like that, we're going to be doing a lot of stuff for slop season. I'm doing uh, some streams on <laughs> playback uh, this week. And uh, yeah, if you like it, subscribe to the Patreon. Sweet. All right, we do apologize to our loyal fan base who we've now uh, delayed the fan shout in a couple episodes because we've gone so long, but we promise, absolutely promise, next episode we will get back to the fan shout outs. We've got a couple banked until that future episode. For Trill, for Joe Olfon, I'm Joseph Cacharo. Pound the Rock.